Well, good morning and welcome to a brand new series called Word Search. In your program, you will see a word search with some, uh, some numbers right there in front of you. We're going to look at those together and do a little searching together. As we do that, uh, do want to say welcome, and I want to say there's a list of words on the program that you can look at, but we're going to try and do some of those together. We're going to try and kind of shout out if you sign some of the words as we go through it. So as we begin today, you remember when your kids were young, they had questions, especially as toddlers. I remember Javen and Sierra, just one after another after another. And it starts off like really cool because you see the scientific mind, they're really inquisitive. Then you're like, will they ever shut up because they just won't ever stop, right? There's just this questioning that happens. And so that's where we we'll look today at different words that help us search the same way you might search in a word search together. So we spend our lives looking for the big answers to questions, don't we? Who is God? What's the meaning to life? What really matters? What are those big topics? And it's interesting because in the Bible, one of the things they do is that Jesus is referred to as the Word. He's the source of all logic. He's the source of all meaning or hope. Is that true? Is it not true? But let's look together and see if we can find it. And that's what we're going to do in the series. Can we find if Jesus really is the Word? So who can find the Word Word? I'll put it on the screen here. Who can find the word? Where would you find that on the list here? At the bottom. All right, word. Good job. So word, the source of logic, the source of meaning, the source of purpose. Another description that's given in the four biographies we have of Jesus is that he is a prophet, a spokesman for God. Anybody find prophet? Yeah, right there, oh, yeah, on the right-hand side. All right, can I say up, down, left, right, or middle? Okay, prophet going up and down. Good job. Prophet. He's a prophet of God. He's also described as that of a shepherd, someone who comforts us, gets us out of a hole when we get stuck, puts us over his back when we're kind of weary and tired, occasionally kind of bunks us on the side to get us back on the, on the right path. Where can you find the word shepherd? Shepherd. Diagonally from the middle. Top, bottom, or oh, so the S, oh, I see, right? So the S, I see, yep, diagonally. Nice job, shepherd. So Jesus found as the shepherd. He also says there's times in your life that feel, things just feel very hard to navigate. It can be dark. It can be mysterious. So Jesus says he is the light. He is the light that can bring guidance and wisdom into our life. That's what the Bible claims. So see if we can find the light together. Can we find the light? Top, yes, the top, light right there. He is the light. Now, the Bible makes all kinds of religious claims. It would make sense that religious people have a religious book that makes religious claims. But let's take the perspective of a skeptic. How do we know what the Bible says is true? How do we know it's just not made up? How do we know it's just not Aesop's fables? Is there any evidence? Can anyone find the word evidence for me? Because we're going to be searching for evidence in our series today. <laughs> Evidence is that to the right, left, or the left. Okay, evidence. Oh, the E-N. Okay, here's the E going diagonal. There it is, evidence. We're going to be looking at evidence. So there are many other questions. So if I get boring today, you can keep looking for the rest of them. But we are going to be looking at the question. Number one, we have four biographies written about the life of Jesus. We're going to examine those together in the next five weeks. Number two, because we got Father's Day in there, if you wonder why there's five. Number two. We are going to see, is there historic data and evidence to support these as viable historic documents? And then three, if there is, what did these books say about God, 
about Jesus and the meaning to life. It means life more than just accumulating, getting bigger stuff, eventually dying with the, with the biggest toy chest. Or is there more to life? And if there is, what would God and how does Jesus have to do with it all? So the Bible makes this audacious claim that there is more to life than just the temporary things around us. There is an eternal aspect to life. And the Bible makes this bold claim that God wanted us to know the meaning of life, so he came to earth to tell us. And that we have these different, uh, this book called the Bible to tell us about that. All right, well, how do you know that book is reliable to know if the stuff it says about the meaning of life is true? I got invited when I was in my early 20s to speak at Emory University. And I was younger than most of the people in the audience. And the audience in general were curious to mostly skeptical, maybe half hostile to the premise they'd given me to speak on. The Bible is a historic document that can be trusted. (laughs) I may have been the only one in the room who held that position. So as I began the conversation, I said, well, let's start by, I pulled out a dry erase board. I said, let's write out all the reasons why the Bible is not reliable. And pretty much I got to hear for the next 30 minutes like a shotgun shell against the Bible, all the holes in the Bible. So I got to hear things like, well, the Bible's not reliable because all the copying errors over time. Uh, There's a lot of supernatural things. Obviously, those don't really happen, so we can't believe a book that has supernatural things that's like magic or fantasy. How do we know that what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John say are true? Because we got other Gospels, like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. They say something totally different. So why do you choose these books and not those books? What about all the copying errors that copied over time? Probably somebody made up something and added a legend here, or somebody just made up something about how his body was missing because it sounded prettier, it sounded like, you know, creating a story. So we filled this whole dry erase board with all these things we'd heard about or been repeated by a college professor over the years. So we got done in a very animated and fun discussion. I said, well, let me ask you this. Put the Bible aside for a second. How do we know of any document is historically reliable. The room went very, very silent very, very fast. I I don't know. I said, let me add a few more arguments you didn't get to. One is like circular reasoning. You know, a Christian says, believe the Bible because it says it's God's word. That sounds like a bad argument. Legendary time frames. We can't trust the Bible because in the same way that Paul Bunyan probably may have lived, but I don't think he had a big blue ox that he went on. We know Davy Crockett really was a, a congressman from Tennessee, but I don't think he really wrestled alligators. Legends came in. What is the evidence from the manuscripts for this? And, and as they all scratched their head, they realized they didn't have any way to discover if any document would be historically reliable. I said, well, then could we at least bring some humility to this conversation? (laughs) The Bible doesn't pass the test, but I don't know what test it would pass. Right? So maybe let's look at what are historic tests any document would have, and then how does the Bible stand up on that? Because it's hard to search for something if you don't know what you're trying to find. Fair enough? It's hard to search for something when you don't know what you're trying to find. So we're going to look at that together, and I want to show you these four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to ask ourselves, what are the objections to it? We'll cover them over the different weeks together, and what are some 
rebuttals to those objections. And then after spending about a third of the message, half the message on that, if they are reliable, we're going to look at Matthew today, and what did these biographies say about the biography, the guy he wrote about? I know, I made up the word, but the guy they wrote about, Jesus. What do they say about him? What's he like? What do he say about the meaning of life? If he is God, what do I want to know if I have access to that truth? So I'll start with the biographies. Are they really true? And if so, what about circular reasoning and legends and, and all these different things? Well, what are we trying to find here? Well, we're trying to find what makes any document true. So within these biographies, let me give you a couple lists. What a historian will do is say, whenever we look at a document, we want to see, do we have any eyewitness accounts to what happens in the ancient time? Two, do we have any testimonies from those eyewitnesses written down that we can confirm and compare? Three, is there diversity? They're not just all the same two guys who conspired with him. Are there are people living at the same time who reference him? The diversity of the eyewitnesses. Then, is there general agreement on the storyline? So that's what we're looking for. And this whole objection of circular reasoning, is the Bible true because it says it's true, I think you're going to see there's a whole lot more to this argument than just that circular reasoning. I had a buddy who uh, I met when I first came here about 20 years ago, came to our church, good friend of mine, and he was a CSI investigator down in Cincinnati. So he was the first on the scene to crimes, first one investigating eyewitnesses. And as we were chatting, I said, well, how do you know when somebody's lying or when they're not, especially when it comes to eyewitnesses? He said, well, if you interview three people about what happened and they all say exactly the same thing, mm -hmm, then you know for sure that they're lying. It's the same phrase, it's the same turn, it's the same cadence. They rehearse the story because it's just word for word or pretty close to word for word. They're almost always lying. It was rehearsed. Oh, that makes sense. He said, if the witnesses tell you a story that's totally incompatible, that doesn't agree on the storyline, they got, they got like, uh, this happened in fall, this happened in spring, this was on a Tuesday, this was on a Saturday, it was downtown Cincinnati, it was up in Mason. If there's big contradictions, and no agreement to the flow of the story, they're probably lying. He said, but the truth from multiple eyewitnesses will have an agreement on the storyline and should always have apparent contradictions because of different vantage points, different personalities, and different perspectives. I went, wow, that's fascinating because that's exactly what you see in the biographies of Jesus. You see different perspectives on one account with an agreement on the storyline with a few apparent contradictions. Think of it this way. How do we know Abraham Lincoln existed? Well, you might say, well, what if I found the personal notes from Abraham Lincoln during his lawyer days? And I said, we have got copies of these we found in his old home in Illinois. And then we actually find that when he was doing the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, we find Douglas notes when he was debating him Abraham Lincoln said this, and I rebuttaled him here. It was really clever. So we have other documents from somebody that saw him and was with him. Okay, so now we get two piles. Then we have another book, a biography, written by somebody in Washington, D.C. that worked with him for a while and literally walked with him through his presidency, and we have that book. Now, if I said these three documents together give evidence that Lincoln existed, you'd say that makes sense. What if I took these three things and I duct taped them together or stapled them together? 
would it now be circular reasoning to refer to the first chapter as a reference to the second chapter and the third chapter? No, that wouldn't be circular reasoning. That would just be convenient. I didn't have to go find the documents over there or the ones over there or the ones over there. So it's helpful to understand what the Bible is. The Bible is actually a set of bound biographies. Matthew was a document found over there. And Mark was a, a different document found over there. And Luke was a different document written a different time over there. And John was written over here, actually many, many years later. So these are separate, different uh, archaeological scrolls and biographies that have been bound together for us. So it's not circular reasoning. You're just citing different sources and seeing if they collaborate and agree. Does that make sense? So that's helpful to understand. The Bible is a set of bounded biographies. So who wrote them? We get into diversity. One biography is written by Matthew, a wealthy Jewish Roman tax collector. What's the big deal? The Jews hated the Romans and they hated tax collectors because tax collectors were like selling yourself out. And this guy who would not have, if you were going to pick somebody to write Jesus' biography, you wouldn't pick a tax collector. Hey, let's pick somebody who hates to write Jesus' biography. It automatically gives that credence of like, if you're going to make it up, you wouldn't do it this way. And so you have both Jewish perspective, a wealthy perspective, a Roman perspective, and somebody you never want to write it if you were trying to sell this thing. Then we find another biography written by a guy named Mark. Who the heck is Mark? He's not one of the disciples. He's literally this unknown Greek guy. And we get a Greek perspective on Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection. If you want to make up a story that's credible, you'd make up somebody famous. Hey, Thomas said this. This is the Gospel of Peter. We have a diverse biography written by somebody that really was relatively unknown. Here's the other thing. In the ancient world, nobody had biographies written about them. Only the wealthiest of wealthy of wealthy could afford it. And then they paid somebody to write nice things about themselves. To have not one, not two, not three, but four complete biographies of a person living in the ancient world, this isn't just the silver standard. This isn't just the gold standard. This is the platinum standard. No one has this in the ancient world. This stands head over head over head of all the other documents that are available in our ability to compare and look at these different things. So then we get to Luke. Now Luke is interesting because Luke is a doctor and a historian. In fact, many historians today, religious and irreligious, consider him to be a first-rate historian. Because he says there was a place, one day's journey to the north of Jerusalem, archaeologists dig down, and sure enough, they find what he talked about 100,000 years later. And he tells us that he wasn't one of the disciples. He tells us that he interviewed, and he cites dozens of eyewitness interviews that he did. So when you're reading this biography, it's actually a combination of first-hand eyewitness accounts. So you have not one, not two, but you have actually multiple eyewitness accounts within here. Then years later, John, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, someone who saw him live, die, and raise from the dead, gives his account. And he also cites dozens of eyewitnesses. So within these four biographies, we have unheard of amount of evidence to compare, compared to any historic document. And circular reasoning doesn't hold up because these are separate ancient documents we have found. All right, what about the legends, all right? 
Well, yeah, but Chad, maybe Jesus existed. Maybe he was around, but he didn't raise from the dead. All this stuff kind of you know, turned into legends years later. Well, let's talk about how do you know if Davy Crockett did what he said he did? How do you know if Abe Lincoln, uh, Abe Lincoln really lived? How do you know if, if uh, Babe Ruth uh, you know, was there? Well, here's kind of the next thing you do for legends. You look for when do legends typically occur in history? What is the time frame for legends? And they almost always occur after the lifespan of the eyewitnesses and their immediate followers. Because if you try and say, hey, I know what happened, and you make up a story while somebody who saw it was alive, they go, I was there. He didn't do that. Paul did not have a blue ox. Paul Bunyan. No, he had a little bit of ox, but he's kind of a tough guy. So usually legends occur years after the eyewitnesses are living who saw the events. And then, who are the eyewitnesses, and what's the documentation for those? So let me just walk you through a few of those. Jesus was born somewhere around 4 B.C., he died somewhere around 33 A.D. So the eyewitnesses that viewed his life, saw his life, saw what he did, would be alive between, you know, let's just say 30 to 120 um, when you count in their disciples, meaning the eyewitnesses and the people who directly knew the eyewitnesses. So typically legends start in the second half of the first century or second, third century. So that's what we're looking at when we see stuff. So here's a rebuttal from the Da Vinci Code. So here's what Dan Brown knows. Dan Brown knows that switching your day of worship from Saturday to Sunday is a big deal. Tens of thousands of Jewish people who have celebrated worship on Saturday since 1500 B.C. changed the day of worship to Sunday. What would be a catalyst to that? So Dan Brown says in Da Vinci Code, it didn't happen way back in Jesus' time. Constantine shows up. And he shifted the Christian Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday to coincide with the pagan veneration day of the sun at 350 B.C. And you read that and you're like, wow, that sounds pretty strong argument. So he's saying there's no evidence prior to 350 that they ever shifted the day from Saturday to Sunday because then it might point to a major event like a resurrection. Well, I'm only going to give you a few. But there are literally thousands of these documents. Here's a couple. The Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, they're all dating to the 2nd and 3rd century, which is the time of legends. And if you're going to make up a story and you want people to believe it, you don't pick the name Mark or Luke. You pick up like somebody famous. Oh, this was written by Judas. Well, then why did it happen 300 years after it? Oh, we just haven't found an earlier copy. Oh, this was Mary Magdalene's story. Why is it dated 250? Don't, don't ask that question. But if you only hear part of the argument, you don't dig in, you don't realize these are all in the time of legends and they're all Gnostic Gospels which are teaching a philosophy called Roman dualism which was the opposite of what Jews even believed and Jesus was a Jew. So that's why these particular documents are thrown out because they're not in the right time period. But here's all the arguments that go against what Dan Brown says. We have biographies written between 30 and 70 A.D., well within the early part of the eyewitnesses. And then those disciples had mentors, the disciples' disciples, they're called church fathers, we have letters they wrote. Here's just a couple. 137 A.D., written by a Roman, not a Jew, but a guy who converted in. And he says at 137 A.D., Jesus arose from the dead, he exhibited the marks of his punishment, he showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. Well, people who saw that are still there, they'd be like, oh, no, no, we were there. That's not what happened. It was a made-up story. 
Let me go back in time, 137. 110 AD, Ignatius, a church father, oh yeah, he suffered truly, he truly raised up himself, for I know that after his resurrection, he was still possessed of flesh, and the resurrection has been fully proved. These aren't Bible quotes, these are things that validate what those four biographies say. Let me jump back closer again. 100 AD, the epistle of Barnabas. Wherefore, we Christians keep the eighth day, Saturday being the seventh day, eighth day being Sunday, we keep the eighth day for joy on which Jesus arose from the dead when he appeared and ascended to heaven. Well, Dan Brown can't be right. We have documents showing that at 100 AD they were still doing it, already doing it. Well, then these biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can all be cited between the time of, of you know, 50 to 70 AD, well within the eyewitness time. And they give us four different perspectives which agree on the basic flow of, of the, the feel with apparent contradictions that you can pretty easily um, explain. And I can go into all those if you're interested sometime one-on-one. -on -one. But we have four biographies. This is unheard of. Yeah, yeah, Chad, but what about the distance between when it happened? Three years later, that's a long time. And how many copies of these documents do we have? Well, that's our last question. Now we're going to figure out what these documents say. How many documents are there? Well, when it comes to evidence for a biography, you say, well, how many copies of the document do we have? How close was the, 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 the ancient book we have to when it occurred? And how many do we have? So, I'll give you a couple examples. Homer wrote the Iliad. Caesar wrote Gallic Wars. The New Testament writes these biographies. So how much time between Caesar and our earliest copy of his writing, or Homer and the earliest copy of his writing, and how many copies do we have to see if any errors came in? Let me show you the, the comparison on these. The New Testament has 5,800 copies that we can look and see if any mistakes got in or any changes got made. 5,800. And you can get the, the letters and the scrolls within three years of Jesus' death. You can read about that in the case for Christ that Lee Strobel wrote. Within three years to 200 years, and we have 5,800 copies to compare with. Plato, we only have seven copies of his writing. Seven. And the earliest copy is 1,300 years after he lived. 1,300 years. And we say, no, Plato definitely wrote that. Caesar, we only have 10 copies of Gaelic Wars. And it's 1,000 years between when he lived and our earliest copy. Homer's Iliad, we have 643. That's a lot. But it was 400 years between his time. So here's my point. You don't have to believe the Bible's reliable. But it stands head over tails from everything else. We were talking about this in Easter service many, many years ago. And when I did that, I had a big sale up here, and I used the different scrolls as different buoys. And we had a lawyer who attended here, and he said, man, that was compelling to me. I've never thought of the Bible as historical. He began to search the evidence based on the facts he learned about like today. And he came back to me a few weeks later. He said, man, I've been researching this stuff. You are right. I'm going to become a follower of Jesus, not because of my faith, but because of the facts and now that I have the facts, I want to have the faith. So these are just a few of the evidences to why the Bible and the New Testament is a historic document for these biographies. Now, if that's true, what do they say about him? All right, so let's go back to our word search, right? What do they say about the biography, the person they're writing about? Well, the first thing we discover is they say that he is a king. He's a king. So we pull up our word search here. 
What are they going to tell us about Jesus? Buried in all the words Matthew writes, he says, Jesus is a king. And he is a king that is born like no other king that's ever been born. And what he tells us about his life and his family tree speak to something very unique. So travel with me back in time to get a reenactment of what it might have been like, what Matthew is describing in the birth of Jesus. Let's watch. It's time. Oh, yeah. Come, I've got you. Come sit. Should we call for help? You've never done this before. Maybe the wife could come and help. No, there isn't any time. We've got no, this. No, no, no. I don't want you to see me like this. Slow, 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 slow. Mary, look at no, me. No, no, no. I can wait. I just go get someone. Don't look over there, Mary. Look at me. We are not alone. I'm so scared. Uh, remember what your messenger said. The first thing your messenger said. It was the same thing my messenger said to me. Remember? Don't be afraid. Mary. Don't be afraid. I love you. Thank you for taking care of me. God gave you to me. He has been our help. And in the shadow of his wings, we will sing for joy. A song of David. <laughs> oh. Can I hear yours now? Not now. Oh. oh, I know, I know. Oh. It is time, yes? Yes. Okay. Yes. This time. It's okay. I got you. Yes, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. My heart is going to explode. <laughs> oh. Don't make me laugh. It hurts too bad. Mm. Mm. He's so small. Smaller than I expected. I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't any of this. Mm -hmm. No. From the beginning of it all. So, your messenger said that he would be called Holy, the Son of God. The prophecy mentions Emmanuel. Are we going to stick with Jesus? I think we should. Probably best, huh? So that's from the TV show The Chosen. So obviously that's not the real Mary and the real Joseph. Um, but it's a reenactment of 
of the things Matthew's talking about. He says, number one, this is not the Messiah we expected, but it is the one we predicted. And so he begins his biography with a biography. I mean, he begins his biography with a genealogy. Here's literally a condensed version of the first chapter. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is hard to believe the way you hear Jesus' name mentioned. Jesus Christ is not his last name. You hear that all the time. Jesus! Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. It literally means the king or the anointed one that's been predicted for hundreds of years. So it's saying, literally, let me tell you why Jesus is qualified to be the king is what Matthew's telling us. Then he traces in incredible detail the family tree of Mary and Joseph and shows that he can trace his lineage back to Abraham. He's Jewish. So here he is. He traces back to Abraham. Also, Abraham had a son named Isaac. He came from Isaac. Well, good. God promised Isaac the Messiah would come from you thousands of years ago. Isaac then has two sons, and one of those sons' name is Jacob. So it could have been Jacob. It could have been Esau. So when, when it shows that Jesus is related to Jacob, you just eliminate 50% of the Jewish population. Jesus in the, is in the right bloodline. Then Jacob has 12 sons, but the Messiah had to come from Judah. And again, Matthew is showing one-twelfth of our choices got out. Jesus comes from the one-twelfth elimination. He's going generation by generation to show all these predictions about the king are true, and Jesus fulfilled them all, Judah and Judah. And eventually, the, the Messiah, the king, had to be related to David, the king, because God told David, your descendant will be the Messiah. So Matthew is opening up by showing you the family tree of Jesus to give evidence that he is the king predicted by documents they had in hand from 300 years ago, 500 years ago, and 1,500 years before. That's what they're laying out. That's the evidence they're presenting. Now, I don't know if you're into family trees and digging into all this kind of genealogy. We had a, a staff member who loved this kind of stuff. So she came back from a, staff, uh, a vacation. She says, oh, it was amazing. I went to Europe, and I was just traveling through Europe. I, spent, I said, what would you do? What would you see? She said, I spent most of my time in libraries. So really? She said, oh my goodness, I researched our family tree and who is who and who is there. And I just spent hours in the library and, and, and her, her, her eyes are welling up with tears just describing, reconnecting with, with the generations that went before her. And, and now my, my eyes are welling up with tears. Hers are tears of tenderness and, and, and mine are tears of boredom because I can't imagine <laughs> going to Europe and spending time in a library for any minute, let alone that long. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds great. I'm glad you enjoyed that. But in Jesus' day, people knew the family trees, and this was critical because anyone would come and claim they're the king of God, you had to meet all these qualifications. So this seemingly boring document is to cite that. I had a buddy of mine um, when I was in high school. He actually was looking through some old genealogies. These were more like stories of his relatives. My favorite one is he had an old uncle twice removed, three generations ago, kind of thing. And uh, his uncle... Um, died, but he actually had a tomb 20 years before he died because he lost his leg. But he wanted to keep it. So he, he already bought the tomb, so he threw his leg in there, and then he followed the leg 20 years later. And, and it's the first time I ever heard of phantom limb. You ever heard of phantom limb? It's when you get something chopped off, and like 10 years later, you're like, man, my leg itches, you know, and, but it's not there, so it's phantom limb. So that was the, the, the most interesting family tree was my, my friend Tyler's uncle with phantom limb. 
But again, Matthew is starting off with what we see as incredibly boring is mission critical. He's the king that meets the qualifications of being a king. And this builds on the second idea. He's not just the king. He is also predicted. So let's look at our word search again. And notice again the two words we have here. All right, back on the screen. Let's see what we got. So within our word search, all the words are hidden in here. So Matthew's going to say he is the king, but I also want you to see he is predicted. Very specific things he did met very specific predicted documents that we have in hand and you can see in reference today. So this is why Matthew gets to chapter 2 and he says, after, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. They say, the wise men remember, hey, wh- wh- where was the Messiah supposed to be born? And they pull out a document from 300 years old from something that was written at 500 years B.C. And they say, well, according to the predictions, if he really is God's king, really is God's forgiver, really is God's leader, if he really is from God, he has to be born in Bethlehem. Thus it is written. They're pulling out an actual scroll to read this. And here the reading from the scroll. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, will come the Messiah. So here's why, again, when you read the Bible, you say, well, the Bible just made a lot of claims. Is there a place called Bethlehem? Was there really a person named Herod? Did Jesus live during that time, or did he live during the time they claim that Jesus does? And do we really have an ancient document that preceded Jesus' birth that talked about Bethlehem? We have all those things. Number one, we have coins everywhere with Herod's name on it. Herod was the richest man maybe in history, but certainly in his day. So wealthy, his name everywhere, validating the Bible's claim of these predictions. Number two, I've been to three of his palaces. This is Masada, one of King Herod's palaces at the Dead Sea. Massive, 11 swimming pools there. Number two, here is his incredible port, all made out of marble, that he built on the Mediterranean Sea called Caesarea Maritime, with evidence that Herod lived during those time periods. Now here's another one, really interesting. Beth and I got to visit here. This is a spice factory that Herod made his money from. It's kind of an ancient aphrodisiac, is how he made most of his money. And right outside his spice factory was a path, a well-worn path between Asia and Africa where tradesmen walked down this path. This would be the actual path, looking out from where Beth and I are, where the wise men would have come from the east and they would have met up with Herod somewhere near the spice factory and that's why they asked him first the question. Just continuing to validate that what's being claimed here, archaeology backs up. Now, think about how hard it would be to sync this stuff up. If you had a word search, you got, I got Jesus. But in order for him to be the real predicted king, he has to, number one, he has to be from Galilee. That's one prediction. I didn't mention that one. He has to be crucified because Isaiah 500 years B.C., before the Romans even invent crucifixion, describe how the Messiah will be crucified. He has to be from a land called Naphtali, which is just up near the Sea of Galilee to the west. He's got to be descendant of Isaac. And he's got to be born in Bethlehem. And that's just a few of thousands of predictions. There is a mathematician who began to calculate the chances of one human being fulfilling just eight predictions. Any eight predictions in history, what would the chances be of one person fulfilling just eight? And Jesus fulfills thousands. But just eight, he said, would be one to ten to the 17th power. What's that? That, he says, is like filling the state of Texas with, with half-dollar bills or ha- half-dollar coins. 
and filling it three feet tall and painting one of those half dollars red and mixing it into the Texans' uh, three feet of it, blindfold somebody, have them wander through Texas, stop wherever they want, reach down through the three feet, grab any one coin at random, pull it up, take the blindfold off, I got the red one! That's the statistical chance of one person meeting eight of these specific predictions. Jesus met hundreds. He's not just the king. He's also predicted. And that's why Matthew has one main key word he wants us to think of too when we think of Jesus. Let's look at the next one. See if you can find it before it pops up. So we have the king. We have predicted. But he says he's also the deliverer. In the same way Moses delivered people from physical bondage, they said Jesus came to deliver us from the greater bondage, spiritual bondage, forgiveness of sins, but also to deliver us from death. We're all going to face the grim reaper. Jesus will deliver us from death by defeating death. And then he organizes the teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew in five sections, just like Moses taught five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Jesus' writing is put in five teachings. And he's often talking about deliverance, a new type of law and a new type of teaching. Moses told you this, but here's the full understanding of that. So let's go in and see what it looked like for Jesus to teach about his deliverance for you and for me. Let's watch. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone should slap you on your right cheek, turn and give him the other one also. And if anyone would sue you, and take your tunic. Let them have your cloak as well. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log in your own eye. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And if anyone should force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you've probably heard that phrase a lot, you know, deliver us from evil. But Jesus says, I came to deliver us from evil, and one of the greatest expressions of evil is death. I'm going to defeat death. In fact, when his name was given, it was his name is Jesus. He will save, sozo, save or to deliver. The word often means to deliver from multiple things. To deliver his people from their sins, to find forgiveness, to find a right standing with God. And he comes and teaches us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. I'm going to deliver you from death. He says over and over again in these different biographies, long before he dies, which his disciples not understand, he predicts his own death. The Son of Man, that's what he refers to himself as, is about to be betrayed. 
They're going to kill me. They're going to kill him. He always talks to himself in the third person was the son of man. And the third day, he will rise up. What kind of a guy dies, predicts his own death, predicts his own resurrection, and then fulfills the goal of it? All written within multiple eyewitness account biographies that are within the eyewitness time period. And like I said, he spells out all the ways in which Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus came to give a spiritual liberation where Moses gave political um, liberation from Egypt. And the comparisons to Moses are all over the place. I'll just summarize a few. Number one, they both had to come from the same family tree. They had to be related to each other. They are. Number two, both Jesus and Moses, the powers that be, tried to murder them when they were kids. Egypt tried to kill off the, the young born, and Herod tries to kill off all the people in Bethlehem. Identical, Moses, Jesus. They both have an exodus. Because Herod's trying to kill off um, Jesus, he has to run to Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, while Herod dies, then God calls him out of Egypt. So same way God called Moses out of Egypt, he literally calls Mary, Joseph, and Jesus out of Egypt. Jesus dies on Passover, a Jewish festival started by Moses. He's raised from the dead on a Jewish festival taught by Moses called First Fruits. It's the day of his resurrection in history. And then... Fifty days later on Pentecost is the day that Moses brought the law, the Ten Commandments, down from the mountain. Fifty days after Jesus died and rose from the dead, fifty days later, the Spirit of God comes upon his people, all lined up to Jewish festivals established by Moses. What's the chance of this? It's either the most amazing made-up story, or it is so shocking, we're like, i got to lean in and figure this thing out. There's just all these things. And as I mentioned, there's five different teachings Five books that Moses wrote, five books the way it's laid out of Jesus' teaching. Chapters 4 to 7 are one teaching, 8 to 10. The writer is trying to show you the evidence that this should be considered. And that's what I want for you. What does it look like for you and I to look at the facts? Maybe you've heard of Anne Rice. She wrote all those uh, interview with the vampire erotic novels. Then she began to look into the meaning of life. She had success. She had money. Is the Bible really true and is Jesus who he says he is? And here's what she writes in her book, Christ the Lord, out of Egypt. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. These are the arguments against Christianity. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case, which had flooded around the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist, for 30 years, the case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship ever read. So here's what I want you to do today. That was a lot of data, right? You're not going to remember hardly any of that. But I want you to try going on your own word search. If this book even might be reliable, what would it look like for you to search for the evidence? Check my facts out. Research this on your own. Look at people who've been on this journey. Go, go on the journey that Anne Rice went on. See if it's true. Go on your own word search, and in doing so, let the word search you. Like, well, I don't believe the Bible. Why would I read it? I read all kinds of stuff I don't believe. Just read it. So it's the world's bestseller. You'll at least know something about it. Just try reading Matthew's account and just see if you don't discover, man, it's like that little, little scene we saw of Jesus teaching. He tells you how to love differently, how to evaluate yourself differently, looking at the speck in your eye, the log in your eye even, not just the speck of others how to care for others, how to think about meaning and truth. Just begin to listen to the words of Jesus and see if it doesn't search you and teach you and bring something out of you. 
I invite the band to come out. Because one of the themes that Jesus brings up throughout his life, actually, is that I am the word. John writes a biography. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was Jesus who took on flesh. And if you get close to this God, and you begin to study and let the word search you, you will find, you, you can't even explain it, but I'm starting to find meaning. And my depression is starting to let go. My sense of what really matters is starting to change in a way that's really bringing me fulfillment. I'm learning how to love my wife or love my husband in a little less selfish way, and it's really taking a good marriage and letting it even flourish more. Begin your own word search, and then let that word search you. Just read like a page a day, a couple pages a day. The whole biography of, of Matthew will take you like maybe a week. And just see who this Jesus is. Because one of the themes used for the whole Bible is that he wants to be your light. A guiding light that helps you make decisions, get back on the right path, find forgiveness, but ultimately defeat death for all of us.